Welcome back to the PJ Pod. I'm Karen Burns and I'm reporting from Bedminster in the south side of Bristol on a very wet day on quite a busy road and I'm standing outside a Weatherspins pub. And it's not because I'm about to crack open a drink, it's because in this episode we're talking to pharmacists who aren't content with just waiting for people to come and see them. They're actively going out into their local communities to help ensure that everybody gets the best possible care. And one of those pharmacists is waiting for me just inside this pub. Adi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Welcome. Thank you. It's my first time down in Bristol, so it's really good to be here. So once you come, you never leave, so you're <laughs> part of us now. <laughs> yes. So, um, Adi, you are the lead pharmacist at Bedminster Pharmacy, which is right next door to this pub. It is, yes. So, as you know, we've come to this pub because we want to talk to you about a really interesting initiative that you started a few years ago called Pulse in the Pub. And, and I understand that you're actually going to be uh, checking my blood pressure in we a few minutes. We are going to. We're going to do it. And people are going to walk past. And they're not going to be surprised at all. Because, like you said, we, we have made a feature of coming in here to do this regularly as part of a deliberate conscious effort to directly connect with people not necessarily getting always the best results because it depends on how long you've been especially in the premises but also to look at how do we take health care provided in community pharmacy into our populations to make it accessible but more importantly for that population to then feel as if the, the doors of a pharmacy are no barriers. It's the same warmth, the same charm, the same sense of being accepted that they will find when they step into that. So let's put it on first. You should pour onto the sound. It's been about a year since I had my blood pressure checked, so I'm quite curious as to what the result of this is going to okay, be. Okay, good. I think, I think the other question, I guess, is to ask is that you haven't been under any particular period of prolonged stress, and today has been a relaxing trip down to the southwest for you. Yeah, it's been a really nice trip down here, so I wouldn't say I was under any particular stress at the moment, though I am, I am drinking a caffeinated drink at the moment, so I don't know oh, how that could impact the see. results. So. We have it. We'll, 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 we'll kind of caveat the results then. <laughs> Blame the Coca-Cola. I can see some numbers on the screen. Yeah, I'm not quite so sure what you mean at so this we've stage. Done the cough, so we've done the technique properly, and I, th- I think at this point the blood pressure devices uh, would be going through, checking that you know as it as the cough that's inflated deflates. What it tries to do is to pick up the 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 systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. Yours has come up, and you're fine. Oh, they're good. good. <laughs> then if you have any readings that do come up, and we do have any concerns about it, we will normally invite the patient to come back into the pharmacy. Not unusual for us to ask if it's okay for us to keep their details, and we will call them just in case they forget. We will call them and say, "Oh, you know, you had and you were going to come in to see us." This is uh, how it also feeds into that sort of in an integrated way how the system looks after us. So it's the NHS in the pub, really, checking your pulse. (laughs) NHS in the pub, I love that. What was the whole idea behind um, coming to a pub to measure people's blood pressure? I think one of the things that really drove us was uh, we were taking part of a national campaign uh, looking at blood pressure checks. And I remember speaking to my trainee who said, oh, you know, we're doing this campaign. We really should get behind it. And saying, oh, I'm going to set up a station in the pharmacy. And my throwback was, well, the people that we need to check the blood pressure and not the ones coming through our door who have 
had an interaction with a healthcare professional already health aware those people who actually in the pub because they are the ones with this risk undiagnosed they are the ones that maybe walk past us every day seeing the signs that invites them in and think that's a strange place and not a place i go to except if i'm bad and poorly and what we want to do is to really understand them but also to help to identify any risks that they may be carrying and from that we became a feature for us to spend some, some hours of a friday afternoon here and just doing it and it's been wonderful for us <laughs> apart from also you get free coffee as well because you know after a while you become a regular feature <laughs> at the back of the pub as well but what it did do was to let the patient know that one you could do this and also to then talk to you about their life um, the pressures it was it was more like a social counseling bit but then also led to people turning up because the bit would be I think you should pop in tomorrow when you know things are a bit more sober and we should really check this and that was it but we really found that it, it really changed the dynamics of our relationship and for us it was really quite humbling because we were coming in to understand the lives of the patients that we have always wanted to reach to and to see their lives in their space without them having to explain themselves to us because we have come into their environment and we loved it actually we love it Was there any particular cohort that you wanted to target when you decided to move this into the pub? We knew that statistically, uh, if you are a man living on this side of the river, and there's a bridge, you know, Clifton, for those that know Bristol, is the more affluent, more uh, posher end of the divide between the south and the centre of Bristol. And if you cross that bridge, you lost 15 years of uh, life expectancy and about 10 years of life lived in good health just from that and it was a very stark thing because it's a walk that I can make in I can do in 10 minutes so where how do we get those patients to engage with us how do we understand their experiences and by coming in here unsurprisingly we found quite a lot of our male patients were here and but then it was part of their culture you know it's this is where they hang out with their friends so by being in the environment you actually have joined the watering hole as well you're part of that group and you're then understanding what are those barriers you know health education certainly part of it access certainly part of it perceptions as well certainly part of it and also the sense of just feeling talked down to you know there and also fear you know actually just the fact that for many of those people um they, they're looking at the NHS and healthcare with the lens of their lived experiences, maybe the bad experiences at school, the bad experiences where they've had dealings with any other government or structural, uh, you know, organisations. So you see yourself as a friendly, inviting community pharmacy, but they don't see you as that. They see that NHS logo as oh, that's just like you know, social security, the job centre, the school. And we were then really having to explain to them that actually, yes, we are part of that, but we are there for you. And, you know, this is what you can get from us and why. And I think that's been for us a real learning experience about culture and barriers as well. So how easy was it for you to get people to engage with this service? Were people initially a bit suspicious or I were they more trusting of you as the pharmacist in the pub? I think there was the sense that you're a pharmacist. So, you know, there was, you know, there was, a, you, you brought in a, a certain degree of uh, respectability and trust in there. 
um, I think what was difficult was why. And I think in a way, initially, there was certainly a lot of amusement, almost as though, are you working out some of your problems in here? You know, you know, is this just a good excuse to skip off on a Friday? And I remember a few people would go, I wouldn't tell them you're sitting here doing this. <laughs> you, think, you know, they know, and they know a wink and a pad and a, and a there. But then, you know, over a period of time, what then happens is after they interact with you, they'll bring somebody around and go, you know, they'll be sitting down with somebody and go, oh, you need to go around and speak to him. You know, you check your blood pressure and have a chat with you. After a period of time, you know, we've done, you know, vaccine uptake interventions here. We've spoken to people about mental health, help and support here. Um, it's, it's led us to also doing a week, uh, a week-long men's health campaign, you know, called the Bemi Men's Challenge as well. So it's brought us into that because what happens is you are getting that sort of unfiltered view of people's health and life, and you go away thinking, "That's I could do something about that." Fantastic, thank you. Oh, finally, how many pints have you been bought as a result of this? Well, I can't <laughs> declare that, uh, just in case the GPXC decides to listen in on us. Okay, so thank you for that, Eddie. So uh, shall we head off for a bit of a walk around your local area? Yes, let's go. Let's good. go and see the Bedminster. And I think it stopped raining now as it well. It is good. So. <laughs> you brought the sunshine with you. Yeah, <laughs> we always do. So we've now left the pub and we're standing at a busy junction. Uh, Adi, I think I can see your pharmacy from here. Yes, you can. And that's because we're on Cannon Street. And, you know, one of the things that, that Cannon Street offers is a vi- visual, uh, real sort of reflection on the health th- uh, disparities in our community. That's because on the left of us, we have East Street, uh, where the traffic's going all the way through there. You know, you can't miss that. On the, to the right of us, we have North Street, which is a more affluent suburb of the city actually always voted one of the best places to live in bristol and then just looking on the other side then notice how we've kept our names very simple for you we have west street <laughs> and west street has got pockets of it that have some of the worst uh, social deprivation index scores in the country and all of these places just kind of come together on right right at the doorstep of our pharmacy so we have a responsibility not just to care for that varying uh, needs and identities but then also to change that actually to help to be part of addressing that inequality that when you literally step out of the pharmacy you can see in front of you and it's so close and yet you know so different so a pretty diverse set of communities within quite a small area that's it yes that's it different needs uh, different um, experiences but ultimately what you then have is something that brings them together which is the NHS and that's why you know really community pharmacy has to embody and, and drive that agenda for health in, you know, to address health inequality. And again, the next stop's Reading. Yeah. If you require Reading and London Paddington, welcome aboard. If you don't, then remain on the platform. Once again, this is London bound and Reading is your next stop due to flooding. We are on the train back to London now after spending the day with Addy. 
I've been um, really inspired by spending time with Addy in Bedminster, just seeing how embedded he is within his local community and the, I think, the affection that he has for them and them for him. So um, I think it's really inspired me to want to talk to lots more pharmacists about what they're doing across various sectors in their own communities, and I think that's what we're going to do now. We've heard from Ade about the effect of socio-economic health inequalities in his local area. And building bridges with local communities also can include culturally competent care, making sure that the care on offer takes into account the whole person and their beliefs. Yeah, sure. So my name's Sahela Danji Morali. I am the specialist pharmacist, advanced specialist pharmacist for perinatal services, and I work in Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust. Suhaila has carved out a new role for herself in mental health, reaching out into her local community and helping ensure that every new mother feels supported to make choices about their care based on what's important to them. It's a great example of pharmacy teams getting to know their local population's particular needs. My personal passion is with the Muslim community because I'm Muslim and come from that background, so really focusing on that ethnic minority, the ethnic minorities within that community, um, and how we can kind of increase access, outcomes and experience as well for that, for that community. It was Sahela's own experience of having a child that led her to want to help others in the same position. It was quite a bad experience really, like having a baby on your own and not having support and, and actually having to reach out and think, okay, I'm struggling with this. And, you know, if I'm just offered a medicine without really any insight as to why I should take it, would I take it if someone really didn't take into consideration who I am as a person? Um, can you tell me then a bit more about your outreach work in the local mosques? As a community, Muslims are quite diverse because actually we're built up of lots of different ethnicities. I remember working on a project with my, one of my teams and we were talking about access targets and how we meet them and, and how we ensure that every community living in our area is represented within the people that we're seeing. And actually it came to me that actually, hold on, just because we target Mosque A by going and doing a talk there, it could just be that that is, for example, only a Pakistani mosque. And if we go there, we've missed all the Afghanistanis, we've missed all the Indians because they go to different mosques. So it's, it was about thinking outside of the box and thinking, how do we reach out to those communities? Basically getting an understanding of what the demographic of who you're trying to target is was the first thing in terms of tackling that kind of inequality. Um, and then... Doing a bit of work in my own personal kind of... I, I go to a mosque and I'm, I like to be part of the community. So what we really did was go into the mosque and actually do a 10-minute talk when there's lots of mums and kids in the audience and just kind of bring awareness to the service, bring awareness to what we deliver, what we do, um, in a way that's actually applicable to them. Faith is a big part of the lives of many people that Sahela works with, and she makes that a core part of her work. I generally tend to find kind of in faith-centred communities, faith always comes into it. And so we, we can't ignore that fact. Um, and so, you know, bringing in the element of what's relevant to Muslims, which is a lot about kind of having faith in God and having trust in God. And I'm sure that applies to other religious communities as well. But actually understanding that it's not shameful to get help because actually part of having faith in God is accepting the help that he's created for us you know that you know having a healthcare professional there to support you is an agent through god really if you if you look at it in that perspective you're not doing anything wrong by going to a healthcare professional you're just doing what you need to do to help yourself alongside your spiritual 
whatever that might be. So really gaining an understanding into what the kind of stigmas are, where they are, and then trying to kind of address them one by one. I know that you can't share personal details of your work, but um, are you able to give us any examples of the kind of ways that you've helped people? Yeah, so I had a patient who was heavily pregnant, transferred you know, to our service, um, and she was on lithium. The conversation came about about breastfeeding whilst taking lithium, um, which isn't usually something we recommend. But I think, unfortunately, this, in this scenario, it was quite difficult because there was an expectation there that, you know, from the previous conversations with other healthcare professionals, that there was nothing wrong with it, it would be fine, and she'd be able to. She's obviously very passionate about breastfeeding. And, and so applying that kind of ambivalence coaching or coaching approach, um, I was able to kind of support her into making the right decision for herself. So in the end, she decided not to breastfeed. Um, but actually, that was quite an emotional decision to come to. And, and it was only something that she was comfortable with after we'd kind of elicited all the facts. I'd gone to kind of UK um, Drugs and Lactation Advisory Service, got a breakdown of what information was really relevant um, and needed to be explained in terms of the risks and the benefits. We sat down together and we actually talked about what her goals were as a mother and aligned those to the breastfeeding whilst taking the medication. Um, we talked up about what the potential consequences might be of you know, breastfeeding in itself um, you know, and how that might affect her mental health. Talked about breastfeeding and, and the medication and how that would work as well in terms of the baby needing to have blood tests and things like that. And I think it was the most, one of the most rewarding things because I think at the end of that consultation she said something like, I'm just really glad you took the time to actually talk me through it rather than telling me what to do. And I think that was the most heartwarming thing for me was actually empowering her to make a decision. Sahail is keen to use her work with her community as a model to offer similar support to other faith groups. I'm working on putting together some therapy that's faith-centered um, that we would hopefully be able to deliver within the NHS and, you know, I'd love for, you know, different religions and to be able to have that on the NHS. But for example, you might have a CBT course, but it's got adaptations for Muslims or for Christians or for, you know, for the Jewish population. When you are religious, I think having something that brings both together for you is, is essentially the most, hopefully, I would hope, is the most effective way of managing a mental health condition. And she has some great advice for pharmacists wanting to follow in her footsteps. Please don't let being a pharmacist limit you. I really am really passionate about that, especially for our kind of younger listeners. You know, you're a clinician, you're a healthcare professional, you're a pharmacist. Don't be limited around, it's not to do with medicines, so I'm not going to get involved. Please, you'll be doing yourself a disservice and you'll be doing your patients a disservice. Remember that if we're trying to promote person-centred holistic care, you are a person. And I think reaching into your experiences and your life and what you're passionate about. For me, that, that shapes how you move forward and really looking at yourself as a person and not letting the title of pharmacist limit you. Suhaila and Adi are amazing examples of how pharmacists can build bridges with a local community and ensure everyone's voice is heard.
And I think they are really good illustrations of something that I read in a recent RPS paper on health inequalities. That paper, which was published a few weeks ago, said that a really good way to understand your pharmacy's local population is to go out there and engage with people directly, often through approaching local community or faith groups. But a recent investigation by one of my colleagues, Carolyn Wickware, showed that it's getting much harder for community pharmacy, particularly in England, to keep this role up. And uh, Carolyn's joining us now. Hi, Carolyn. Hello. So can you tell us a bit more about what you found on community pharmacy and health inequalities? Well, what I found was that community pharmacies in deprived areas are making about 50% more claims to the NHS for carrying out services for their patients when compared with those located in less deprived areas. These are services like blood pressure checks and consultations through the Discharge Medicine Service, which are really valuable for deprived communities where hypertension is higher and patients tend to be taking more medicines. So that's really interesting. So um, what you're saying in effect is that pharmacy is filling in those gaps where other health services are less available. Obviously, there are no substitute for an A&E on your doorstep. But yes, the evidence does show that there are more pharmacies in deprived communities. In fact, community pharmacy runs counter to the inverse care law. Sorry, the what? So the inverse care law says that where more people need healthcare services, they're less likely to have access to them. And that's not true for community pharmacy? So this is true for much of the NHS, but for community pharmacy, research has actually found that 99.8% of the population, so almost everyone, in deprived areas have a pharmacy within a 20-minute walk. And for comparison, in the most affluent areas, 90% of people can walk to a pharmacy in 20 minutes. It's still a high proportion, but this really does show just how accessible pharmacies are where they're needed the most. And that sounds like a really good thing, but you've also showed that this might be being put at risk by the funding squeeze on pharmacies in England. Yes, so while the number of service claims is higher in deprived areas, so are the number of pharmacy closures, unfortunately. I had a look at some official data on this and found that about five times as many pharmacies are closing in the most deprived areas versus in the most affluent areas. Pharmacy contract negotiators are blaming this trend on a lack of funding for the sector as a whole. We've seen evidence that the government knew pharmacies would close when it decided to freeze funding for five years. But the fact that closures are even affecting pharmacies in high demand, such as those in deprived areas, is a big concern. That sounds pretty short-sighted to me, um, particularly as um, COVID, as we know, has also had a really negative effect on health inequalities, hasn't it? Absolutely. There's evidence that deprived populations are more likely to develop cancer and nearly twice as likely to die from cardiovascular disease. The government's own levelling up white paper, which was published in February last year, said that England's health disparities are striking and that COVID-19 has made these disparities more stark. So is there any hope here? Yeah, it doesn't sound great at the moment, but there is something that NHS England is working on. It's called the Core 20 Plus 5 program. It's not the pithiest name I've ever heard. No, um, it's a funding initiative to tackle health inequalities in five clinical areas across the country's 20% most deprived communities. Of these five clinical areas, community pharmacies already have a clear role to play in two of them hypertension case finding through the NHS blood pressure check service, which sounds like what Ade was contributing to, and early cancer diagnosis through a pilot that is currently rolling out in two parts of the country. At the moment, there doesn't seem to be a comparable initiative in Scotland or Wales, but 
There have been major reports published in both countries recently calling for government action on improving health inequalities post-COVID. So it sounds like quite a disappointing picture overall, because pharmacists like Ade and Sahela are showing such energy and such imagination on this, but it really needs to be backed up by government support if it's going to make a real difference. That's true. The PJ will be publishing a call for pharmacists to submit their stories about how they've been reaching out to underserved communities this month to try and make the case for more investment to tackle this problem. We'll put a link in the show notes and I encourage all PJ Pod listeners to let us know what they're doing. That's a great idea because I really like the idea of keeping this conversation going. And I like the idea of doing more PJ Pod episodes from the pub. <laughs> yes, let's let's see let's see what we can do. Um, thank you very much, Carolyn, for coming on the pod to update us today. Thanks. I also want to thank Ade in Bristol and Suhaila in London for speaking to me about their amazing work. This episode has been presented by me, Corinne Burns, and produced by Jeff Marsh. If you've enjoyed listening, or if you think there's a topic that we should be covering, then please do let us know on social media using the hashtag PJPod. As always, please like, subscribe and share wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.